Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Frederick Leloux is a former business consultant and best-selling and paradigm-shifting author of Reinventing Organizations, who decided years ago to trade time in airplanes for more time with his family and projects that feel really meaningful. His current focus is on the week, a powerful new approach to inspire mass mobilization to confront the climate and environmental breakdown. Welcome to everybody. Uh, My name is Thomas Hubel and I'm the convener of the Collective Trauma Summit and I have the great pleasure to welcome you, Frederick. Welcome, warm welcome here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited about this conversation. This summit is about creating a global healing movement. Uh, so it's a collective trauma summit, but we are looking how do we develop more kind of integration, healing, restoration power in order to deal with some of the major issues, one of which I know you are very passionate about, which is climate change. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, but before, I would love to explore a little bit with you when when trauma hurts relationships and often is being created out of hurt relationships already um and i know you you spend a lot of time exploring the business world economy world organizations you wrote a book reinventing organizations which i like very much and so when you when you look at how do you see trauma or hurt relationships or another symptom is scarcity i think trauma creates always not enough of something and uh, how does this uh, affect organizations and how does it affect the bigger economy world and then maybe from there we will go to explore a bit the your climate change work i mean uh, (laughs) there's so much in that question because my sense is that i'm not a trauma specialist but my sense is that we have these multiple stacking layers of trauma um, and for most of which we almost don't have a language yet right in organizations like if you go inside an organization and you say like let me talk about trauma today people Mm -hmm. will stare at you and have no idea what you know what you Mm -hmm. want to talk about because at best you know the language is an individualized language you know i might carry some individual trauma but like you know the the more collective of systemic trauma Um, and so the way I think about it um, is that you have sort of organizational trauma that is sort of event related, mm-hmm. right? Some merger that happened and that caused some trauma or some bankruptcy or some scandal that happened or some whatever history of sexual harassment, you know, something that traumatizes one organization. And that's maybe the easiest to understand and to name because it's, you know, people can pretty much understand, yes, we're sort of all traumatized by this merger that we had. And so I think that's a level that most people will will understand. Mm -hmm. 
um, for me in my work, what was interesting to me was sort of a deeper level of, of trauma that is baked into the systems that we tend not even to question. You know, our management systems, the systems that we're being taught in business school, you know, this is how you should run an organization. But when you think about them, they basically have deep embedded trauma. And we can go into more details if you're interested. But like the trauma of hierarchy, the trauma of power over, you know, nobody questions that. Of course, we need hierarchy. But I actually believe that comes with a deep, you know, deep level of of trauma. The the trauma, I call it, of, of having to wear a professional mask of not stepping into our wholeness, um, the, the trauma of doing, pursuing meaningless purpose. Um, you know, so there's, there's these things that are sort of baked in that most people don't even question because this is simply how things are. Um, and so, you know, at the level of, of management systems, if, if you want to call them that. And then I think there's an even deeper level of trauma that you alluded to, which is sort of our whole economic system and our monetary systems that are built on scarcity. And that, that, that bring even deeper level of trauma. So, you know, we, we can go into any of those. Um, what is fascinating to me is that I, I feel that as individual trauma becomes something that is named and recognized, that, we've, that we get a chance now to talk about sort of these deeper level of, of collective and organizational and systemic traumas. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be I would be interested to hear a bit more about power over because like we come out of thousands of years of power over and uh, and and suddenly there is there are more options. So like I often also say we are bruised from such a long time of power over, but it's we need to integrate those bruises. So I would be interested in that, and then maybe as a second step, uh, looking at the kind of economy world as such a bit deeper. But let's start with the management first. Yeah. Yeah, so the, you know, the, one of the things that I've been fascinated by is the emergence of self-managing not only teams but self-managing organizations, right? And sometimes really large organizations that operate in, in self-managing fashion. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples is Dutch nursing organization. You know, they're now fifteen thousand people, and they don't have a single manager, mm-hmm. so they just don't operate with that kind of structure. And they're incredibly efficient, right? And they're you know incredibly human place to work, and they grow just because pretty much everybody wants to work there, and everybody wants to have them as clients. Um, and the process was interesting for me. Like it took me, you know, quite a bit of time researching them to wrap my own head around that this is actually possible. Like I've had grown up, like mm-hmm. everybody, you know, being educated in the sense that we need power hierarchies, right? From the youngest age, we have adults that have power over children and the whole school system. I think we're all scarred by the school system where somebody else defines our curriculum. Somebody else defines what our days will be made like in 45 minutes chunks and where we have to go from which, I mean, you know, we're just conditioned um, for years and years and years Mm -hmm. of accepting that power over us. And if you look at the school system, there's this whole escalation of punishments Right, all the way up to you know exclusion from the social circle, you know exclusion from school, and you know ultimately prison, if you don't submit to this thing. So we're all conditioned in this, and it took me quite a while to get over my own disbelief of this is not possible. You can't run a fifteen thousand people organization with no managers. Come on, like, like you know that's not possible. And and yeah, I had the time to research this and, and really understand that not only is it possible, but it's in many ways superior, right? And if you look at, I, I don't need to go too deeply into this, but if you look at all living systems, all complex living systems in nature, they're all self-managing systems, right? A forest doesn't have a hierarchy, right? Your brain, Thomas, doesn't, you know, 85 billion cells and it doesn't have, you know, you know an executive committee in there that tries to control what the 85 billion cells do, right? That, that wouldn't work. So, you know, we know this is possible. But it's a radical shift. And as you say, it's thousands of years of history. Um, and if you want to bring, break it down maybe to the most basic, it's basically the pyramid or the circle, right? And, and we're, I think, in this really exciting time where after thousands of years of the pyramid, you know, we're learning <laughs> to reintegrate the circle. Um, but at scales that are much bigger, than what used to exist in in hunter-gatherer societies. Um, And I've 
I've come to believe that, you know, the relationship, the power over relationship that is inherent in the pyramid, right? I am your boss, so I have power over you. I get to decide if you're hired, fired, if you get an interesting project, you know, if you make a promotion, if you make more money. Um, that relationship is fundamentally unhealthy, right? Comes with fundamental side effects, fundamental flaws. And it's interesting to me to see how, how much wisdom there seems to have been with hunter and gatherer societies to make sure that this didn't emerge, you know, that there wouldn't even be status differences. And when you look at organizations, I feel, I believe that this power over is so actually unnatural, so antithetical to our human condition, contrary to what people say, oh, it's always existed. It's, I, I th actually think it's so antithetical to our human nature that we have to create all sorts of power markers and rituals and corner offices and private jets and all sorts of things and different clothes and suits and stuff to make that acceptable, to, to make it feel like, of course, this person is more important than me. So let me no longer question that because they have a corner office because they dress differently because. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me when you take that lens and you walk inside organization, how much energy we put into justifying hierarchy and, and power differentials. Um, because otherwise, like if everybody just dressed the same and had the same office and had the same, people would just look at you and go like, why are you telling me to do this? <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't accept that if we didn't have all of these power markers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just about that, how, how do you see what, what does an organization need to go through that is used to a hierarchy? What are the easy parts and what are the difficult parts to change to like a self-organized? It's interesting because there's, for me, two very different answers to that. One is, in some ways, it's very simple. Um, you know, let's say that you have a team, right? And there there is a manager who has power over the others and, you know, decision-making power. And in many ways, it's very easy. You just have a meeting and some organizations do that, you know, take three, four hours and you just say like, hey, here's the manager. What are all the tasks of, you know, a manager, right? That he has decision power over the other people, right? I don't know, the manager you know, is the outside phase of the team to other to elsewhere. The manager, um, you know, looks at the financials. The manager hires people. The manager coaches people. The manager looks for social cohesion, you know, deals with conflict and so forth. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can make that list. You can get to 10, 15, 20 things. And then you simply say, okay, if we really look around the room, you know, who wants to do what? Who is good at what? Like, you know, if we're honest, you know, whenever there's conflict, we don't go to the manager anyway. We go to you, Thomas, because you're, you know, so why don't you do that, right? And, you know, I'm pretty good with numbers. So let me do it, right. And then you distribute these things. And then you have some simple rules about who can make what decision. How do we deal with conflict? And that thing is done. And it's pretty common sense. If you bring it that way, most people go like, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Thomas is anyway better at this. I'm better at this. So let's, let's just do it that way. So there's this very low drama, very much common sense way of going about things when you go in practice. But as soon as you talk about things from a theoretical perspective and you say, we'll, you know, we'll go towards self-management. You know, you'll get this reaction in all organizations, like, what, this is not possible, this is impossible, you know, because then you go to sort of the mental representations that people have. And then people go like, wow, this is not, this is not possible. And so if you go to that level, my understanding is that you actually need to go quite deep and get people to surface the deepest assumptions that they hold about how humans function, uh, how we relate, uh, what the nature of work is. Um, and you know, I, in, in the book, I talk about some organizations that transition from being traditional organizations to self-managing organizations. And they always had some processes where they got everybody in a room and said, you know, if we look at how we operate today, what does it say about our view of human nature? Mm -hmm. And typically pretty ugly things come out, right? It says like, you know, um, people can't be trusted, right? You have to, you know, lock the storeroom because otherwise people will steal. People are basically thieves if you don't watch them, right? People, you know, people don't want to work. You know, they want to do the least amount of work. So you have to have somebody looking over their shoulder because otherwise, you know, so people are lazy, right? Um, and then you have all sorts of typically 
class markers, right? Like if you're not an engineer, you can't really understand these things. And so, you know, suddenly all of these ugly assumptions come out. And then when you put them on a wall, I, I know of an organization in French who often does this. They have a room of 150, 200, 400 people in a room, right? Talking about these things. And the way they do it is, you know, first you have a one-on-one -on -one because that feels safe to say it. Then you say it around a table and then you have a microphone and then some people dare to say it. And then you write this on a big wall. And so you have suddenly like this collective moment where people just look at the ugliness of the assumptions behind the current management system, right? And then you sort of pause and say, is that how we want to go forward? And, and no one in their right mind goes like, no, this is not the assumptions we want to build on. And so what would be a different set of assumptions, right? And then you can write sort of a different set of assumptions. And now, now if we take that seriously, what would be the management practices, right? And, and, and then you you get to shift, but you have, my understanding is you have to go to that deepest level of actually surfacing the assumptions behind this pyramid, because otherwise people just go like, that's how it's been done. Like, you know, you've been so conditioned from the youngest age, from your relationship with your parents, with school, that everything else just seems like some, you know, dream, some pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. No, that's very powerful. And it also shows how much of these assumptions are basically based on, on some sort of power over tr trauma or power abuse. And and for such a long time. So I think it's it's right what you said. You need to go very deep to unearth this uh, yeah. assumptions. I have the same thing about the school system, right? I I really, uh, yeah, the, the whole school system makes no sense to me at all. I mean, the school system sort of perpetuates that, you know, top-down um, trauma. But when you talk with most parents about it, when I try to talk with most parents about it, they become very defensive. Mm -hmm. you know, and I talk about these alternative schools and how amazingly they work. And, you know, but even if you show the evidence, people go like, no, that can't be possible. And mm -hmm. at first I thought it was only because parents are rightly scared in sort of a scarcity economy of like, oh, if I take that risk for my child, you know, will my child be left behind? Will my child mm -hmm. not go to university? Will my child, you know, not make it in life? You know, I, I thought that was, but then when I really dig deeper, it wasn't that. It was what I call the, the Stockholm syndrome of if you are telling me that that is possible, that a sort of a nonviolent, child-centric education is possible, then you're basically saying that I suffered for 12 years with something that wasn't necessary. And mm -hmm. I'm not willing to even contemplate that. I'm not willing. Like there must have been a meaning to my suffering, right? Otherwise, it's too absurd. Right. And so, you know, for the school system, I think it's the same thing. If we want one day to shift our school systems, we have to go sort of to the deepest level of assumptions. And I think we have to work on our inherited trauma. We have to cry out everything that we've suffered in the school system, because otherwise we will keep defending something because we can't just accept that we've been suffering and going to something this absurd that had no, that had no meaning or no sense. Mm -hmm. No, that's very powerful what you're saying. And very true, like how how strongly we perpetuate it. Um, and so when you look at now at the economy system at large, because I think this links us also slowly to to climate change, another passion of yours. Um, how do you look at uh, where do, the symptoms of trauma, scarcity, disrelatedness, disrelatedness to nature, disrelated, like there's like the, a huge field here where we see symptoms. Maybe you can speak from your own experience, how you see them. So I won't go too much into the details because some people are better, you know, to talk about like how the money system itself builds in scarcity, right? Our, our debt bearing money system, right? Is, is based on the fact that whatever money we have isn't enough because, you know, it comes with debt. And so we will have to give, you know, pay more in the future. So like the, the system itself builds scarcity into the system. Um, and so I, I'm by now convinced, even though I'm not an economist, that we will need to shift to a whole different monetary system, which is <laughs> a huge endeavor and a huge, a huge task. Um, but even beyond that, the way we've individualized safety by tearing away the fabric of belonging, of communality, um, and of help, um, is everywhere around us. Um, you know, the fact that, 
you know, I had to move I, from my native Belgium to the other side of the ocean to live in an eco village where we have more commonality, where people mm-hmm. actually know each other as neighbors. If somebody is sick, they won't, you know, cook for two months. If there's a baby born, the parents won't cook for two months because people take care of them. Like that has become exceedingly rare, so rare that I had to move, you know, thousands of miles to do that. And even in this place where we have a lot of that, you know, looking after each other, at the deepest level of financial security, we are still living individualized lives. So maybe even in this, one of the most advanced sort of places in the world, like everybody is saving for their own retirement. Mm -hmm. Everybody is saving if something bad happens. Everybody is insecure about like, ah, do I have enough money? If something bad happens, like, and I cannot work if I, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about it, it makes no sense, right? If we were to put this in community, like if, if I were to know, hey, if something bad happens to me, Thomas is going to take care of me and, you know, Alison's going to take an alley and, you know, and then when you have a problem, we're going to take care of you. Like, you know, it's used to exist in more communal forms of life. I mean, imagine the pressure that is off, right? That, um, but we don't, we don't have these systems, right? And, and so I find myself in that thing of like living with that sort of view of scarcity of like, is, do I have enough? I'd like, you know, I feel like I have enough, but then I have enough in case bad things happen, but is it then fair that I give this to my children? You know, if, if I were to die tomorrow, they would get some money that I have in case, you know, but then they have this advantage over like all of that makes no sense, but I'm, you know, like everyone else, I'm still navigating in these systems and maybe I want to share a story. I'm sure she would be okay that I shared like, um, you know, there's somebody I, I admire a lot, Mickey Kashtan. I don't know if you know her. She's a um, nonviolent communication, amazing, amazing person. You would very much uh, enjoy getting to know her, Mickey Kashtan. And she's one of the persons I find most impressive because she is able to be really uncomfortable to live in integrity with the world that she wants to see. And so Mickey has made this decision, which I understand and don't have the courage to do for myself, which is to say, I will have no savings because I don't believe in a world of individual savings. I believe in a world of you know, communal taking care of each other. And so she says, you know, if I'm becoming too old and I don't have the means to sustain myself, and if there's no community that rallies around me because they feel that I'm worth living, then I will take my, my life and it will be the end of my, of my life because, you know, that's, wow. You know, that's, you know, that, that's a statement of like the world that we want to live in. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, that's the deepest level of, of scarcity that's built into our, our economic and cultural system of we all are individuals, you know, fending for ourselves and ultimately we're all alone um, in, in providing our own security. Uh, what a sad, <laughs> what a sad world to live yeah. in. Yeah. And as you said, that the communal aspect, that the hyper individualization of our world is 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 a big big symptom, I believe, of collective trauma, that we are so fragmented and separate, and and what it needs to to create that communal sense again. I think that's a powerful question. And so when we when we link what we said so far to to climate change like when maybe you let, let's speak a little bit not why because it's obvious why you, why we need to be passionate about doing something uh, right now but how how did you because you were very passionate about reinventing organizations for some time and then your focus i mean switched to a certain degree yeah. and tell me a little bit about that switch how it came about in your life oh, yeah. and then maybe we talk a bit about the root the root causes of climate change and what we can do as a yeah. collective yeah um is the shift for me happened some four years ago um we had friends visiting us in, in our eco village and mm-hmm. they were same ages as, as ours and had two children the same age as ours and they had had the courage to really look at what's happening with the climate but more broadly sort of the environmental breakdown that is happening and we were just so impressed by their willingness to look and to be uncomfortable. And then out of that uncomfort to come out of it, you know, roll up their sleeves and decide like, that's what they wanted to dedicate, you know, the next chapter of their lives to. And, and it made my wife and me realize that part of us was still 
um, not in denial, but in protection mode. Mm -hmm. you know, even though we had moved from Belgium to this eco-village and we did all of the good things that you can do, you know, if you, you know, composting and buying secondhand and, and you know, having a very insulated house and all of these things, um, that we were still sort of in protection mode that every time we would read an article about climate change, about biodiversity loss, et cetera, I would read the first few lines and then go like, not sure I want to deal with this. Um, and, and so when these, after these friends had left, we looked at each other and said, you know what, let's, if, so there was a little bit of pride involved, like if they have the courage, you know, we, we can do it too, right? And let's go mm -hmm. there and let's take it almost sort of a spiritual journey and see whatever shows up, you know, what will show up, you know, sadness, anger, shock, what, you know, just be really curious. And, and it sent us in, into a sort of a, yeah, a grief journey, sort of, you know, we describe it sort of as a U-shaped journey, you know, like, and lots of sadness, lots of shock, lots of, um, and, but then, you know, we also came out of it on the other side with just absolute clarity that, you know, this was something meaningful that we wanted to work on. And so we closed the chapters in our, in our, previous, um, in our previous lives. My wife had just written a beautiful book about grief and perinatal loss. And so we, that's how we went on to create, you know, this, this project that we just launched called, called The Week, um, which is basically helping people go through that same process. Um, because we became fascinated about like, how come that we have, we face this climate abyss and that we don't have a mass mobilization for it. How come that it's just maybe 1% right. of the population that is okay. you know, in arms about it and everybody else is in protection mode like we were, right? And, you know, we, if you look a little bit into social science, it's, it's not very difficult to understand like, you know, the, the dominant playbook that we use, which is give people the facts and then they will wake up and act, isn't working. Right? It hasn't worked against AIDS, against smoking, against you know, teen pregnancy, against obesity. And it's not working against the climate. And yet that's sort of the model that we keep using. Like we hope that one you know, more report from the United Nations or from you know, some scientists will finally wake people up. And we know that it's actually counterproductive. Most people go into like, oh, you know, actually, I don't want to hear about it, right? Um, so we have to create deeper spaces where it feels safe to engage with us right? And where people can go through their own U-shaped journey. And so we created this, this program, it's called a week. It's not a topic here, but if people are interested, you know, they can check it out at theweek.oo. And it's basically, you get together with a group of friends, a family of colleagues, um, and you get together three times during a week. And every time you watch this one hour film that we've carefully scripted to help you go through that you, and then you have group conversations to process it. And, and, you know, people are just, deeply, deeply touched because it's like finally a space where they can go and, and talk about this. And, and to your you know, question about trauma, what, one of the things that was most surprising for us when we started you know, working with the week is the reaction people have at the end of the first night. So the first night you go down, you, we share everything that you've been trying to avoid. It's pretty brutal. You know, often there's tears, but we create this container where it's safe with your friends, your family, your colleagues to go there and, and process it. And almost systematically at the end of this first episode, when we were listening in to learn, you know, how people were receiving this, they told us, this was brutal. Thank you so much. And we, at first I was like, you know, nobody ever told me like, this is brutal. Thank you so much. Right. Like that made like these two things don't go together. Right. And what I understood was that collectively, you know, we're, almost all in this protection mode of not wanting to deal with you know the reality of what's coming and that there was sort of this deep sense of relief of people of like ah you know what thank you like i finally looked into it and you know ah you know i'm done protecting myself from it like i'm you know i'm now part of of this reality um and so i you know i have a 12 year old um and I see it with him, you know, just a, yeah, I don't know if trauma is the right word, but, you know, this, this trauma of witnessing the destruction that is happening. And I think more deeply than that, what I see through him is witnessing the unique destructiveness of human beings, like being part of a species that is bringing about that destructiveness there's a part that I sense with him that I've sensed in myself of like, you know what? Stop the train. I want to get out. Like, I'm, I'm not sure I want to be, <laughs> you know, I want to be part of this. 
right? And so being part of sort of a uniquely destructive species is, is something very, very difficult to deal with. And for most of us, we have no spaces where we can go with this. And so the week is trying to create that space uh, that is in many ways very trauma-informed of like, hey, we need sort of a collective space to look at it. We need to have the courage to acknowledge things and then, you know, to surface them, mm -hmm. simply look at them. And then, you know, that's where we can start to process them and then, and then reconnect with our own choice and our, our own power. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you said it already. Uh, I'm fascinated because you're you're doing actually something that <laughs> in the trauma work or collective trauma work we also do is like we just say, okay, we need spaces where we can look at that which is difficult or that which was difficult in a healthy relational environment. And that the relationships are able to hold the difficult parts. And that actually is what makes the difference. And you you described exactly that. That's a, that's a beautiful. It's very beautiful. And I think this architecture is something like exactly what you built is, I believe, what we need all over in order to deal with this kind of difficult things to face. But then we face it also when we have relational support. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people have told us like, oh, couldn't we create like the week for racism here in the US where I live, where we could sort through the same similar journey. And I think we could adapt that architecture, as you say, to, to quite them, some things. And what I found remarkable, um, I mean, it's, it's really early days, you know, we just, we just launched, but, you know, we had like something now like 20,000 people, you know, you know, register. And um, so it's, it's, it's starting to take off. Um, and what's fascinating is we, you don't have a trained facilitator in your room, right? That was sort of our crazy bet is that we can provide something this profound by having the, the films that, you know, bring out all of the things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, simply giving people some instructions about how to hold a circle. So there's after the films, you know, you mm -hmm. stretch for a minute, you know, you go pee, you get some water. And then there's a little video that sets up the group conversation, sets up some very simple ground rules of, you know, speaking in turns, you know, no interrupting. Uh, you know, having somebody to be a guardian that, you know, if somebody does interrupt to sit, gently stop them and, right. And so there's a very simple architecture. And then we simply, you know, give them one question that everyone speaks to. And, mm -hmm. and it seems to, to work powerfully. And for me, that was sort of really this, this, this big bet is that we can do something that is really quite powerful without necessarily the need of a trained facilitator. A, because it doesn't scale very well, but also B, because a lot of people, groups of friends or family wouldn't necessarily welcome a stranger into their mm -hmm. home to facilitate mm -hmm. that for them. So. And you do it mainly with, with families and friends, uh, people that know each other already? Um, yeah, so the idea is that it's people who know each other, um, but it's, it's also colleagues, it's also people in church groups. Um, so especially in the workplace, it, it seems to take off um, quite quickly and it's you know, it's, it's deep conversations inside sort of, you know, the places that bring a lot of that destructiveness out, right? Um, and and we, we don't pull any punches. Um, the, the way we've written it, um, we've been careful not to be polarizing so that people wouldn't have an excuse to not engage with it. So we don't talk about whatever capitalism bad or, but we just show the systems in their absurdity and their ugliness and so people then even inside organizations go like, yeah, but all of that ugliness, that's basically what we're doing, right? And, mm -hmm. and so it, it brings about these, mm -hmm. these deeper conversations. Um, yeah, it's beautiful because you, you actually don't polarize the content because you also create the witnessing space. You make a space where we become the witnesses of what's actually our process that we are in right now. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Also, the simplicity, I think, really makes it work well. Yeah. Uh, as you described, yeah. And the, and the other thing is that it, we go at it from a sort of a peer perspective. Like we are just trying to figure it out just like everybody else. So we don't come with an expert perspective. So as you say, in witnessing, we just, we see this. What do you see, right? And at the, in episode three, so when you come up episode three, you know, it's people tend to leave with full of energy, full of like, because we tell like, we don't know what you can do about this. Like, there's tons of things you could do. We show them tons of examples of people who've decided, you know, who've gone through their own grief journey, but come out of it on the other side, never wanting to go back because they found clarity about what's important because they're working on stuff that's meaningful. They've met interesting people. And so we basically show them like, you know, look, you could be like, like them, you know, there's, and there's so many things you could do and we don't know what you could do. Like, you know, so there's no shoulds, but only like, what are you good at? What would be meaningful in your life? Like, what do you feel called to do? 
and and our senses you know when you bring that then people don't feel like you talk down to them because who would I be anyway to tell them what to do, right? But just like, hey, I'm figuring it out. And for me, my contribution is this because that's what I like. For you, it might be that, right? And um, so that sort of peer-based aspect of like, this is a collective adventure. I, I very much believe this, like the next 10, 20, 30 years are gonna be this huge collective adventure as systems start to break down and we have a chance to build up other systems. Um, and so, you know, if there's such a collective adventure, you know, who wants to stay on the sideline? Like, you know, it's way more fun to be to part be in. of this adventure, right? And then yeah. it's for each of us to figure out what are our places in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're also giving a powerful example of of speaking to the citizen responsibility of a mature human being, like that we how we engage and you create the space and environment for engagement. I think that's a beautiful. I think creating spaces for alchemical spaces or transformational spaces and creating ecosystems. And then, as you said, everybody needs to find out by themselves what they need to do. They, they are creative by themselves. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And by, the, by the way, I just looked at the numbers recently. So people, you know, we, we invite people to fill out a survey at the end so that we learn how the experience was for them. And more than 50% of the groups decide to meet again at least one more time, if not more spontaneously it's not part of our sort of suggestion of our architecture and our thing is you meet three times during a week but more than 50 percent of the groups feel spontaneously like ah you know we come out of it like let's meet again because we need each other mm -hmm. to figure out what we want to do like you know they sense like if we don't meet again there's a risk that life you know normal life just takes over and but i want to be part of this right and so mm -hmm. let's hold each other accountable let's keep meeting in that space um and the number of messages we've received where people say, like last week we received one example of this was a message where people said, we've been friends for 25 years. Like we thought that we were going deep, but this has brought our friendship to a whole new level because, you know, here you have the space where you cry together, where you laugh together, where you, you know, you talk about the deepest questions about like, you know, what's mine to do? Like, you know, I imagine that my children will face real suffering. What should we do? Right. Um, so it's, um, yeah. It's just a, yeah, almost an honor to be able to, you know, to create these spaces. Mm -hmm. and, and... Yeah, and the the genius thing is that people know each other. I think that makes it much easier for the relationships to be strong enough to hold the intensity of what people experience. I think that's a really good move to do it with people that already have a relational base and not just strangers that just come together in a group. That's that's very powerful. It's also. The reason we designed it like like this, and this was really, by the way, this is a project that I've done with my wife, Ellen. So it's really a project that the two of us have done together in this particular piece of like, no, we need to do this in existing social groups and not something that people can watch individually was really her contribution. Um, and the idea there is if we let ourselves be really deeply changed, right? If there's an inner shift in, for instance, in this case, in our orientation towards climate change and the environmental breakdown, if I really understand the urgency of this and go like, then the only reaction to this is basically, I want to roll up my sleeves. I will do my thing. If I take it that seriously, but my friends and family haven't been part of this, they will look at me and say like, Fred, you know, this is a new Fred. We don't like that new Fred. Like, where does this Fred come from? Like, can we have the old Fred back? Right? And they will do their best to try to bring the old Fred back, right? It's going to be very difficult. Like if I suddenly say like, you know what? I'm quitting my job because this job no longer makes sense. I want to put my energy elsewhere. Like chances are my family, friends will look at you like, what are you crazy? You have a perfect job. You know, they will suddenly feel like, oh, maybe if he's doing it, then I should, you know, so they will resist that. So, but if our family, friends or colleagues go through the same thing together, then we're sort of changing together. Right, and it makes everything so much easier. So there's this, you know, one of the reasons we need to do this in, in groups rather than as individuals, because otherwise I come out of it and I feel like, but no one else understands. And I try to talk about it and they don't get it. And so like our need for belonging is so big that chances are the most secure thing I will do is like, ah, let me just go back to the old self, even though my cognitive dissonance is now even bigger, mm -hmm. but I just need to keep belonging to the, you know, to the group I belong to. Yeah, yeah, no, it's beautiful because you actually created an ecosystem that creates an ecosystem. 
<laughs> and not just a singular transformation. It's it's very beautiful. It's like it creates ecosystems that then support each other, like uh, supportive of each other. And so that's uh, really beautiful. And just to talk about that, and, and they, they really create like the number of people who've told us like, I've seen it in my workplace. And then like, ah, I immediately created a group because my wife needed mm -hmm. to see this. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise my wife doesn't understand where I've, you know, or my husband doesn't understand or the opposite. Like I've done it at home and now I, I bring it into the workplace or I bring it into my church group because otherwise suddenly people don't understand this, uh, this important thing that I'm starting to live into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm really fascinated. I think it's a really fantastic idea what you're doing. It's, uh, it's, and, and anyway, I'm, I'm very much interested in what's the healing architecture, what's the architecture we need to build in order to create a systemic change. And that's a beautiful example of a very functional architecture that has many, many beautiful aspects to it that really work well. So that's and as you know, like we didn't in many ways we didn't invent anything. Like you know, these processes you know have been around these rituals and these spaces have been around forever. Um, like even if you look into in, in the environmental space, you know, Joanna Macy's work that reconnects, you know, basically has people go through something similar. Um, I think the particularity of what we've been doing is that we've brought it to a context with people who aren't yet used to these kind of places. Like if you look at you know the work that reconnects Joanna Macy, which is a beautiful work, but is already talking about like listening to the cries of the earth and like you know stuff that you mm -hmm. take your average bank employee and they you know they do <laughs> right. Life, right like <laughs> you know um, so our our goal was really to go beyond you know the, the small percentage of people who are either already convinced around climate or who are already familiar with these deep spaces. Right, and so bring it in a way that is not threatening to people who've never actually experienced any of these, you know, deeper spaces. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's beautiful. So I'm happy you're doing that. That's that's amazing. And um, and when you just another one more question, I would love to expand a bit. So looking at the wider systemic aspect of climate change, how do you think? I mean, that's definitely one contribution to it. When you see the systemic change we need, how? How do you look at that at the moment globally? Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, one of the lenses that I use to, to look at things is sort of this, you know, integral perspective, sort of, you know, sort of Ken Wilber's work or, you know, just, and so I very much believe that there's not one single approach, but it's sort of this whole constellation of approaches, right? And so you can look at climate change as a purely technical issue it's just co2 and we just need to solve co2 right and and there's some truth to that right one part of the problem is co2 and we indeed need to very quickly decarbonize but of course in my perspective that's way too reductionistic right and so you can then look at all sorts of you know all the way up to this is fundamentally a spiritual crisis or maybe even bigger just not any spiritual crisis but sort of a, a rite of passage for humanity as a whole, right? Maybe growing out of sort of, you know, one stage of humanity, adolescence to, to some other, you know, more mature stage, right? Um, and all of these, I think, are valid. And we need people working at all of these. Now, I personally find that the emphasis is too much on the technical aspect of things, right? In, in Ken Wilbur or Spiral Dynamics, you would look at like the sort of this orange technical aspect where we just calculate CO2, and even though it's important. Um, and so I'm, I'm more interested in sort of these broader definitions, you know, and like, you know, Charles Eisenstein has written sort of beautifully about, you know, how, you know, this is way too reductionistic and how at the more deeper level, I think this is a crisis of, of this connection, right? Of, you know, all of the fun, you know, the fundamental disconnections of our human nature, fundamental disconnections of us versus nature, not seeing ourselves embedded as part of nature. And so no longer, you know, hearing the cries of nature, right? Um, Obviously, you know, if you were to see a tree as a real living being, you wouldn't deal with forests in the way we deal with them. Right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by just, for instance, in indigenous languages, you, you probably know this, Thomas, right? Like how they have different pronouns, right? In French, for instance, we have le, la, the feminine, masculine. Why we have those, it doesn't make particular sense. Why would the the chair or the table, one be feminine, the other masculine, it's not very obvious to me, but 
but there's like places where you have pronouns, you know, for living things, right? And so we have the same pronoun as, as trees, as meadows, as, you know, as rivers, like suddenly it's not an it, you know, a tree and it, you can cut it because it's an it. But if the tree were a he or she, right, it would suddenly change our relationship, right? So I, I think at some deepest level, you know, that's where, you know, the, our, our crisis is coming from. And so I, I feel that we need answers at, at all of these levels, going from the purely technical to mm. fundamental change in, 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 in worldview. Yeah, yeah, I very much agree. And also, I, I find it interesting that like when, when we go through the forest and then we ask, where is nature? Many people would say, oh, it's around me versus I'm also nature like I'm like the rabbit in the in the forest and so I think that that kind of dualism between humans and nature like the perceived dualism is I think an, an important and interesting quality to uh, examine and coming with that and the flip side I see a lot in the environmental movement is then to see to perpetuate that dualism in another form which is the problems is us it's humans <laughs> exactly. But if only humans didn't exist, then you know nature, then the world would be good, and it's sort mm -hmm. of perpetuating that dualism of right. seeing us outside of it. Um, and um, you know, my 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 twelve year old son just fell in love with this um, Native American woman, um, Lila June Johnston. If people want to look her up, Lila June Johnston, um, because she has this thing of like, can we see ourselves as a keystone species? you know, that can heal and that the world actually needs as part of, you know, it's broader unfolding, right? Just to be like, you have other keystone species that are, you know, the wolves and the whales and, you know, that in their ecosystems, you know, are a fundamental part. And if you were to take the wolf out or the whale out, you know, the systems would collapse and wouldn't be the same. And, you know, can we see ourselves as playing that part and being, you know, part of the, the healing of the planet? Um, and for, I, I just noticed how for my 12 year old son, there was such a relief with this thing that he had already integrated that we are the bad species, that in many ways, it, you know, the world would be better off without us and without him. Exactly. I think you spoke to something very fundamental and very powerful, like how we internalize this. And then that even makes us turn away more from the climate change issue then turn towards it uh, i think that's a that's a big barrier that you mentioned now right so maybe i see our time uh, i maybe if there is something like a bit of a summary of what you think is important for this time for our listeners anything that you think of or anything that you didn't share that you would love to share with us for me right now, I don't know why this is so present, but for me, the, this, the notion of adventure is really at the heart of what I'm thinking about living through. Um, there's so much dread. If you look at what's happening, you know, you'd look at, um, but through that, there is so much healing that is possible, right? And, and again, I, I'm convinced that the next 10, 20, 30 years will be this massive adventure you know whether it's bad whether it's collapse or whether it's you know reinvention and so what an amazing time to be alive like i sometimes i wish i could have five lives in parallel because there's all of these ideas all of these <laughs> things all of these visions i have of things we could work on mm -hmm. right if i if i just take trauma right um like the fact that we've now named these things like you know i don't know if it's the same in, in europe in, in the us here they talk a lot about uh, aces you know adverse childhood experiences right and so there's like sort of 10 markers they're imperfect but like you can quickly count like how many of these tens you know trauma inducing you know events did i have have in my childhood you know and i just go like wow we could have this collective vision of within two generations could we go you know we have sort of net zero you know, for emissions, for climate, like, could we imagine a goal of within two generations, we have net zero trauma, right? That's right. Would that, right? That's right. What, a, what a vision would that be? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the first time we have the capacity to, I think, to name it that way, at least for a few thousand years, 
right? Not only to name it that way, but to be understood, have the tools now to do something about it. I mean, that's amazing, right? I, I live in the US, the question of race, you know, is everywhere. And you go like, people talk about reparations, but what if we looked at reparations from a race perspective? And we said like one way that white folks could undo a lot of the damage is to provide all of the resources so that black and indigenous people could, you know, within two generations, you know, heal the generational trauma that is transmitted. Like that's our form of reparation. I mean, there's just so many exciting things to do, right? And, and the same with climate. I mean, we can regenerate huge swaths of land. Nature rebounds so quickly if we let it do it. Um, you know, there's visions for like, you know, regenerating half of the, you know, the, the earth's surface. I mean, regenerating, I mean, it's, it's amazing, right? Um, <laughs> and so we, we just need to go from that stuckness of like, uh, but everything is so terrible. And, the, you know, to the other side, basically the other side of that you, where we go like, wow, there's so many things we could do. And what is my, my contribution? Yeah, yeah. No, it's so lovely to listen to you. You so you transmit your own excitement and creativity. And I totally share this with you. I mean, I also have so many ideas in the many of the ones that you said right now. This is fantastic. And maybe there's also stuff we can collaborate on and, and work closer together. Yeah, it's lovely. And so thank you, Frederick. It was so lovely. And uh, especially the last part was you transmitted such a joy. And that's what I also feel when I listen to to you i feel like your 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 inspiration that is constantly speaking and your love for for movement and for you know your creativity so that's really inspiring so thank you very much thank you thomas visit collectortraumasummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next collector trauma summit is announced thanks for listening to point of relation with thomas Hubel. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.